I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, May 6, 2013. Had a wonderful trip to Palo Alto. Details forthwith. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, like I told you on Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, which I recorded on Thursday because I was traveling on Friday, um, <laughs> if I had the opportunity to uh, to interview today uh, Saiten Bruggenkate, of, uh, he's a, a presuppositional apolog- apologist and uh, kind of street-level evangelist and you know fighter. This is a fantastic guy that I would be doing this program today. Well, it turns out that he was available, and I had a fantastic... Fantastic conversation with him just minutes ago, and uh, in fact, what we're going to be doing for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is uh, playing for you the uh, interview that I recorded earlier today with uh, Sai Ten uh, Bruggenkate uh, to discuss his new film uh, entitled How to Answer the Fool. And I, folks, this is an important apologetic work, and the reason why it's an important apologetic work is because I think Sai uh, has it right. In his approach, I know it sounds kind of crazy. I mean, I was trained in evidential apologetics, but that being the case, there's something to be said about the presuppositional approach that I think is absolutely imperative that that you understand it. So there's a right use and a wrong use of evidential apologetics, and presuppositional apologetics is actually a very bold and a little kind of a well, for lack of a better way of putting it, it may be a little bit complicated and daunting at first, but once you get it. It becomes a very powerful arrow that you want to keep in your apologetics quiver. And so um, the uh, conversation that I had with uh, uh, Sai this afternoon 
we touch on the right use and wrong use of evidential apologetics and and talk about some of the basic concepts behind or about presuppositional apologetics and then uh, and then again point you several times to the new film how to answer the fool which i think is a very well done worth watching not once maybe twice uh, but at least three times i mean it, it, you when you work through it a few times it'll help you get uh, what this apologetic approach is, and I think give you a very powerful weapon, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So I hope that you will find this educational and informative by way of the interview, but that it will also lead you to the website so that you can purchase and download your copy of How to Answer the Fool. Now, that being the case, let me talk real quick. Uh, over the weekend, Traveled to Palo Alto, California, gave a series of lectures on how to, you know, talking about the authority and reliability of Scripture in the postmodern church. And I want to thank every one of you that uh, showed up. In fact, we had a listener from Guam. Uh, at the uh, event, and it was, uh, again, humbling it, just to meet with many of the uh, listeners of Fighting for the Faith and to hear your stories and have the the privilege of serving you by giving you some good, um, well, reasons to, uh, to believe that the Scriptures can be trusted, that they tell us reliably what really happened, because they tell us about Jesus Christ, and it's rather fascinating, and used as a foil some of the stuff that, uh, some of the claims out there regarding the reliability of the Gnostic Gospels, which falls flat when you investigate it, and uh, and then also uh, taking a look at some of the more recent archaeological finds that I think, again, um, you know, when you put into proper perspective, you sit there and you go, man, there's good reason to trust what's in the scriptures. But that being the case, this was a Christian audience, and I think that's the right audience for the, that type of uh, evidences. But anyway, so without any further ado, I, I want to switch gears here and get right into my interview uh, earlier today with uh, Saiten Brugenkate. So without any further ado, here is that interview regarding the new film, How to Answer the Fool. Here we go. All right, on the line, I have uh, Sai Ten Brugenkate, and uh, he's a Christian apologist and street-level evangelist who, I, uh, you know, he's got a recent video, I, I'm sorry, film, that uh, <laughs> just recently came out called How to Answer the Fool, and it's it, it's probably one of the best primers I've seen out there uh, introducing people to what's called presuppositional apologetics, which I think a lot of people who study apologetics, number one, don't understand, number two, may not have been exposed to it, and number three, not understand how important it is, especially in today's postmodern age. Sai, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's, I'm gonna, I have some questions I want to ask you, and uh, hopefully we can have a great conversation here, but I don't want to give away too much of what's on the video because I really want the listeners to Fighting for the Faith to, sorry, the film. Yeah. See, the thing is, I made the mistake. I called a, a video in the film, uh-huh. and people have brought that up. And I said, "Well, that's a mental hiccup. I'm almost 50." Uh, right. Well, see that. Well, <clears throat> was there film <laughs> used, or was it all digital? I mean, I know the chocolate Knox. He's 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 a, a very um, technologically savvy uh, young man. And right. so I'm sure it was all digital. So was it really yeah. a film? Well, we can't really call it a digital, can we? <laughs> no. I, what do you, yeah, what do you call it? We, oh, let's call it an MP4. How's that? Because that's what the file extension was when they gave me the preview. I like film. It sounds cool. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. And he's recently been featured in a new film. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> now we're talking marketing. And anyway, the name of the film is How to Answer the Fool. And I want to make sure that throughout the um, the interview that uh, people know how to uh, how to get to this uh, film so that they can uh, purchase it and download it. And it's you can find it at AnswerTheFool.com. Is that right, Cy? AnswerTheFool.com. AnswerTheFool.com. Super simple, and uh, hopefully in the course of uh, my conversation with Cy, uh, you, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, will think that this is a worthwhile download. And not only that, you might want to watch it several times, and you'll, you'll understand why as we, uh, as we talk about this. But, uh, Cy, the video begins with you discussing... Uh, sorry, the f- film... <laughs> I, won't, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to do this interview or not? <laughs> Okay, so the film. The film begins with you discussing the proper use of evidential apologetics as well as the misappropriation of evidence uh, when conversing with unbelievers. Now, I personally, uh, I've been trained in evidential apologetics. I think that there's a value to it. And I think from what you uh, present in this film that you think that evidential apologetics has a proper place. However, uh, the film, it's clear that uh, that there is a wrong this is the wrong apologetics tool to use in certain circumstances and furthermore how to answer the fool attempts to demonstrate that many popular evidential apologists are guilty of uh, this misuse of this tool so i'd like you to unpack a little bit for us uh with an eye toward uh, unpack this with an eye toward how how wrongly using evidence makes atheists and unbelievers the judge of God, which is kind of an, uh, something that people don't really think through when they use evidential apologetics with an atheist or a hardcore agnostic or kind of a punk-nosed kid who uh, who's learned some postmodern uh, obfuscation. So let, let's talk about that. I want people who listen to this to keep in mind that the reason that I speak against evidential apologetics is because I used to do it. And the person who's the most ardent anti-smoker, someone who's against smoking, is someone who used to smoke. You know, and that's why I'm so against it, because I used to do it that way. And the thing is, I don't say that there's ever a place for evidential apologetics. Now, people get up in arms when they hear that, and I say, there is no place for evidential apologetics, but there is a place for evidence. Uh-huh. And there's a big difference, because if you use evidential apologetics to try and convince somebody that God exists, we're denying, first of all, what Scripture says about them that they already know that God exists. But this is a question that I ask people. I say, where do you hear evidences most often out in the world? You hear it in court. I say, who do you give evidence to in court? The judge and jury. If you get somebody who comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God, and you give them evidence, you're saying that they're the judge and jury and that God is on trial. And I will not elevate the unbeliever to the position of judge. I will expose the fact that they know that God exists, that they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Can you use evidences in that? Absolutely. But you have to do it in a way that does not put God on trial. Now, that is a great point. That is a great point. So you make a distinction between a right use of evidences as opposed to, quote, evidential apologetics. That's a kind of a nuanced position that you're putting out there. And as somebody who's been trained in evidential apologetics and has spent a lot of time you know, doing street level, you know, arguing and fighting with atheists and and people in cults and things like that. I I find what you're saying to actually pan out in the real world really well because when I you know first was trained in evidential apologetics, I would get out on the streets and I'd be talking with a you know an atheist or an agnostic and would give them an elegant, well crafted, designed evidential uh, you know apologetic for why they need to believe in God, only to have them go, eh. Eh, no right. big deal, and 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 I couldn't figure out what had happened. 
<laughs> the thing is, if you discuss evidences with them, they'll talk with you all day because you're making them the judge. If you expose the fact that they're not the judge, the, the conversation might end very quickly, but at least now you're honoring God when you do it. See, I had, I had a friend of mine, uh, he knew somebody who was getting his master's in apologetics. He was one month away from graduating. He'd never heard of presuppositional apologetics. And in one hour, my friend explained it to him. And this fellow said, I feel like I don't deserve my degree anymore. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Well, let's, let's kind of unpack this a little bit further. I, so in understanding presuppositional apologetics, what you're basically saying, you know, kind of some of the presuppositions of, of the presuppositional argument is that Scripture clearly, unambiguously says that every human being, including the, uh, the so-called new atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins and the, and the late Hitchens, these guys know that there's a God, and the only way that they're able to get to their position where they're as hostile as they are in their, quote, new atheism is because – not because they don't have evidence that God exists. They know he does, and they're suppressing that in their unrighteousness. Right. That's what it says in Romans 1. Now, even after I explain this apologetic – and I make the mistake sometimes too, but people say unbelievers know that there is a God. Well, that's not what Romans 1 says. They know that they know the God, and that's why they're without excuse. Because if they know a God, they could say, well, I thought it was Allah. And you would think that that would follow that they would have an excuse. But Romans 1, I understand from the Greek, I'm not a scholar on that, but the term that is used of God there is the God. And it makes sense when you follow with the fact that they're without excuse. And people have tried to use Romans 1 and say, well, that shows that they knew that there was a God, but they've suppressed it so far that they don't know it anymore. But if you keep reading the chapter, it says they're God's God-haters. Right. They know his righteous decrees. And you have to know that God exists in order to know that. Now, one thing about Bonson and Van Til, who I've studied uh, most under, is I've never heard them call the unbeliever a liar. But what they talk about is suppressing the truth. They talk about self-deception, right. first and second order beliefs. You know, that they'll push the belief, the stronger belief that God exists, away. And they'll bring up the other beliefs that he doesn't exist. So there's, there's, that's what Bonson did his doctoral dissertation on, on, um, on the concept of self-deception. Right. And you see a lot of that when you're out on the street for sure. So it, 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 now somebody who you know, is kind of trying this argument on, they might feel like, man, that's quite a card to play. You know, so you're, you're, you're out there, you're, you're street preaching or you're talking to an atheist friend and they say, I don't believe in God. You immediately come back you know, with, no, 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 you, you know that there's a God. In fact, you not only know there's a God, you know that the God I'm talking about, that he's actually the true God. You throw that card out on the table, and uh, that's going to be a, a – it, it could either be a conversation starter or a conversation killer, but um, that's quite a card to play. Well, you'd be surprised what it does when you go out there and you bring that – you think that people would automatically reject that claim. But more often than not, it leads to the person you're talking to ending up in tears. Mm-hmm. And I've had that enough times that, uh, and I tell these stories when I do my talks. A really good friend of mine, we were at dinner, and he said, Sai, the thing that I hate most about you is how certain you are that God exists. How are you so certain that God exists? And I didn't give him a whole bunch of evidences. I said, the same way you are, but I'm following him and you're not. Yeah. And my friend looked at his hands as if he had to go to the wash them. We'd just been to the restroom for, you know, five minutes before we just got to the restaurant. He got up and walked to the restroom because he was crying. Right. And this happens quite often. I was out at uh, Newport Beach in California, and I was with the Living Waters crew, and they're uh, training street evangelists. There's a group of like 50 of us, and I got away from the bus because I don't like crowds, and some guy in his 50s come, came up to me and says, what's going on here? I said, oh, a bunch of crazy Christians doing street evangelism. And he kind of looked at me and goes, oh, I see, yeah, I'm one of them. 
he starts laughing. And he said, two of my brothers committed suicide. I swore at God. I hated God. No God would take my brothers. God does not exist. And he happened to have a book on Hinduism and his bicycle. Mm-hmm. And he picked up at the dollar store a few days before. It was underlined, dog-eared. He said, this Brahman, this oneness of being, he said, I like this. I can get into this. Now, I didn't refute Hinduism for him. I said, tell me, is that the God you're mad at when your brothers committed suicide? Oh, great question. And he started crying. Everybody knows that God exists. And the problem with his apologetic, and this is how I describe it, we've been given a nuclear bomb, and Christians love it so much we want to take it apart, see where the wiring is, see where the atoms split. That's great for Christians, but then we go out in the street, and we take the bomb apart, and we show them all the, all the constituents instead of just dropping it. No, you know that God exists. Because this, when they say they don't know that God exists, they're actually committing blasphemy. Right. Because blasphemy is not only against the name of God, it's against the word of God. God says that they know that he exists, that they know that God exists. When they deny that, they're committing blasphemy, and we as Christians must address that. Right. Well, i got to tell you, just as far as you know, getting to the nub of the matter, it, you know, it saves a lot of time to just look an atheist in the, in the face and say, no, you know that God exists, and the, the one I'm, I'm proclaiming to you, that he's to him, let's, right. just put all, let's just put the facade away. And, and that's really what it is. I think a lot of Christians... Um, you know, it's like they're walking on eggshells barefoot. They're afraid of cracking things and, you know, oh, you know, you got to be careful. And they've bought into uh, the facade that atheists put up that, oh, there is no God. There's no proof for God. And, and, and you've got to prove to me that God exists. And you're basically arguing, nope, I don't have to prove that to you at all. I said proof presupposes God. Right. The very concept of proof presupposes God. Now, I get people on the street, and of course they say to me, no, I really don't know that God exists. I said, the Bible says you do. I say, no, I really don't know that God exists. I said, well, the Bible says you do. They say, I really don't know. Then I say, well, you're fine then. Have a nice day. And you should see the looks that I get. I say, look, if you really don't know that God exists, you're fine. You're good to go. Have a good day. And they stick around because they want me to elevate them to the position of judge. Right. I say, no, if you don't know, you're fine. But the Bible says, you know, have a nice day. Uh-huh. Go with the authority of Scripture. And, you know, people think that bringing up Scripture in their argumentation makes them look foolish. But more often than not, out on the street, I see it shuts mouths. That's the role of apologetics, not to convert people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We close mouths intellectually in the hope that the Holy Spirit converts them. Yeah. It's uh, the 2 Corinthians 10 uh, passage, you know, that we take every thought captive. Right. You know, so many times I I hear Christians, you know, they'll quote that passage about taking every thought captive and they think it has something to do with, you know, or or, it's kind of limited in its scope that, you know, the only way you're applying this is when you have uh, an unholy thought. And, you know, you've thought something you shouldn't think, you know, like, you know, oh, I hate that person or, oh, wow, that chick is really hot or something that that we're taking every thought captive. But I think in the real context there, that's really about taking down strongholds and everything that elevates itself against the true knowledge of God. Well, look what it says just prior to that. We cast down vain reasoning. Yep. And people say that, you know, my apologetics is, you know, I am just do it by, by being nice to the person. I said, you can't cast down vain reasoning by bringing someone a casserole. You know, you have to be able to defend your faith intellectually. Right. See, the, the problem is that God is Lord of our theology in church, but we go out into the world and man is Lord of our apologetic. Mm. And that's why I say this apologetic is not just a cool way to argue. It's life-changing. Yeah. When, when you bring God from being Lord of your apologetic to Lord of every aspect of your life, then it makes you love him more. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus said in Luke twenty-one fifteen, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's not the complexity of the eye. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. In fact, one of the things that just is mind-boggling to me is how many of the you know popular evidential apologists, uh, you know, the, the apologetics guys, they, they they think that somehow it's you know some great feat of strength. You know, uh, you know that they they're I'm going to go out onto the apologetics battlefield and I'm going to prove to you there's a God without even using the Bible. I'm going right. to prove that to you. And they think that they've really accomplished something. You're like, oh, you know, look how strong I am. I can fight you with one arm tied behind my back. And what I don't understand is how they think they've actually won the argument. I mean, for instance, like if a Christian evidential apologist decides to prove to an unbeliever that there's a God using philosophical arguments, we're going to use the Kalam cosmological argument. We're going to use the argument from design. We're going to use whatever. And let's say at the end of the day, you know, the the person there, you know, the atheist they're talking with goes, "Oh, you're right. There is a God." What exactly has that apologist accomplished? That person is still the judge. We have great evidence. We can win that court case. But the unbeliever is still the judge. They say, I'm going to worship God because he has met my burden of proof. Now, I don't want people listening to this to think that God has not converted people through evidences. God can strike a straight blow with a bent stick. I think it was Van Til that said that. But, but the thing is, the problem is if you're a Christian because of the evidence, then you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. But if the evidences bring you to a place where you submit to the Lord of glory, fine. And people have done that, but I'm saying we should not use the bent stick just because God has used it. We should use a, a God-honoring apologetic. I'll just give you one example of why using ev- other evidences to prove God doesn't make sense. I came up with this analogy recently. I said, what if you were to prove to somebody that you had the fastest truck in the world, and the way that you are going to do it was by towing it down the racetrack? And the person would say, oh, wait a minute, wouldn't that tow truck be faster? And that's the problem. <laughs> If you use anything else to prove God or to prove the Bible, then that other thing is the authority. And, you know, that's what we have to see as Christians. Yeah, well, I think if, if you've successfully argued an atheist into believing that there is, quote, a God, all you've really accomplished is making him a theist or a deist. A deist. Anthony Flew. Yeah. Yeah, and I say if Anthony Flew didn't repent for his sin against the God he knows exists, he's in hell today. Right. You know, that's not success. You know, a, a lot of people s- seem to forget that um, Muslims believe in a god. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so just because you're a theist or even a monotheist is not synonymous with being a penitent Christian. Who's well, I, a- yeah, sorry, I, I go on the biblical description, Psalm 96.5, all the gods of the nations are idols. Mm-hmm. See, those people aren't theists, they're idolaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point because we're, I'm using a the, no, philosoph- I, yeah, the, the philosophical term. Right, that's mm-hmm. the accepted term. That's a philosophical term. They're monotheistic, but that's an idol that they believe in, and they're still suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness regarding the true God that they already know exists. But the thing is, you Google, go to YouTube and look up Anthony Flew, and you could see all of these. And I trust that they're dear brothers in Christ interviewing Anthony Flew, slapping him on the back. Which evidence made you a deist? Big deal. Right. Yeah. Now, this is kind of – I'm going to steer the conversation a little bit here. Uh, Lutherans, which I, I'm a confessional Lutheran, um, we talk ab- about the proper distinction of law and gospel. And I think that this, this ca- these categories are actually a little bit helpful in talking about presuppositional apologetics or apologetics as a whole. And um, when you look at classically at, um, at Lutheran dogmatics, Lutheran dogmatics are have a – 
uh, 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 let's put it this way, a firm skepticism regarding the effectiveness of uh, of apologetics for this reason, and that is is that it's seen primarily as a function of of the law. Uh, the idea being this is that um, when you're talking with somebody who is an unbeliever and you're taking every thought captive, the next thing that must uh, that must happen logically, if this is going to t- go from you know basically a uh, an academic conversation to actually engaging in real evangelism, is to call that person to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. That's where the gospel comes in, and so we we distinguish law and gospel. And so apologetics would technically fall under the major category, broad category, of law. And it doesn't cross over into evangelism until somebody is proclaiming to that lost sinner that they need to repent and trust in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, you know, God calls us, uh, you know, to repentance through the means of the preached word and the preached gospel, not just tearing down somebody's arguments. Well, I really appreciate you brought that up because it's given me goosebumps listening to that. Because what I tell people, people have asked me, how do you get to the gospel from this argument? I say, if you have to do that, if you have to ask that question, you're doing it wrong. And I fully confess that when I first started doing that, it was more of a technical argument. But now the way that I do this the presuppositional argument is a gospel proclamation because what you're doing is them, you're showing them the depravity of their mind. You're showing them that they need a savior. And I say, look, if you go out in the street and you tell them the good news, like you stop somebody and say, I'm going to give you a free open heart surgery. I say, man, you're not touching me. Get away from me. But if you tell them, you know, or if they just come from a doctor's office and they find out that they need surgery or they're going to be dead in a week, they're going to embrace you. Right. So what I do with the presuppositional arguments is I show them the depravity of their mind, and I say, that is a gospel presentation. And when you recognize that, I say, Christ did not only die to save souls for eternity, he died to save your reasoning now. And very, like, almost immediately I show them the absurdity of their reasoning, and you're immediately into the gospel. Yeah, and it, 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 it's like a half step. I mean, you just... You just literally just make one more step and you're right to the gospel because it's law and gospel, sin and grace. And you think about, um, you know, Peter and his great uh, Pentecost sermon. I mean, he's out there just blistering these folks with the law. You killed, <laughs> you killed the author of life. And, you know, he's really at them. You handed them over to evil men to, hey, but God raised him from the dead and, and they're cut to the heart. And they, and they ask, well, what shall we do? Right. Right. And and so if if you're engaging in proc- and proclaiming the faith, it requires you to do law and gospel and to show sinners their sin, because you can't possibly begin to understand what Jesus was doing for you on the cross, the good news of the forgiveness of sins, unless you understand that you are a sinner. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, this very quickly, because the first question you'll see it on the on the film as well. When I go out there, I say, could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? And if they say yes, well, you're in the realm of absurdity, and that's why you need Christ. Right. And now, and and this is where I want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of presuppositional apologetics. I got to confess that when I first ran into it, it was a little bit confusing. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're dealing with somebody. Uh, you're trying to explain presuppositional apologetics. Rarely do people ever really take the time to consider 
what they are presupposing in order for us to even have a rational or lucid conversation or, I mean, yet alone being able to talk about things of ultimate significance such as right and wrong, truth and error, good and evil, or whether or not there's a God. People rarely understand that you just even being able to have this conversation and have knowledge, you couldn't be doing it without God. And so what happens is, is that uh, somebody's first glance at presuppositional apologetics may be confusing and feel kind of like the ontological argument for the existence of God. And you, you sit there and go, wait right. a second, does that even work? By the way, the ontological argument for the existence of God, I think there's only one person on the planet who would actually believe <laughs> it, and that's Plantinga. But, you know, the argument goes on. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's not here anymore. But <laughs> yeah, but the idea <laughs> is that, um, you know, by definition, God is a being than which none greater can be conceived. And since, mm-hmm. uh, you know, since uh, that's the definition of God, existence must necessarily follow because otherwise you can conceive of a being than which none greater can be conceived. And you sit there and you listen to the argument and you scratch your head and go, okay, something's wrong with this and I can't quite figure out what. But you know what's wrong with all of these arguments? All of these arguments conclude God. Yeah. And I say, if these arguments conclude God, guess what? You didn't need him to get there. Right. I say, that's not the God I believe in. The God I believe in from him, through him, and to him are all things, even your ability to argue. I say, God in the presuppositional argument is not merely the conclusion. He's a necessary starting point. Yeah. You can't even make sense of the ontological argument. Well, nobody can make sense of that anyways. But you can't make sense of any argument unless you start with God. Right. Now, so coming back to my analogy then, so somebody who's hearing about presuppositional apologetics for the first time and, and you know, how, how it works may feel it's, it's, it's like climbing the hurdle of the ontological argument. How do you, number one, help Christians overcome that hurdle? But number two, so there's kind of two, uh, two par- parts to this. How do you help Christians overcome that hurdle so they can understand really what it is that you're, that you're driving at here? In addressing the presuppositions, but number two, when you're out on the street and you're uh, you're preaching and proclaiming the gospel, how do you help unbelievers who may, at first glance, really kind of be stymied and confused by what you're doing? Right. Well, the thing is, a lot of people, Christians and otherwise, will say, "Well, look, I don't know how my car works, but I can still drive it. Like, I don't know how I get knowledge and truth and logic and these things, but I can still use them." I say, "Yes, but unless you start with God." You can't make sense of what you're doing. And back to the car analogy, I say, look, you can drive your car, but your worldview doesn't make sense of glass and metal and tires and engines. And that's what I expose to them. So when I say to them, look, this conversation here, it presupposes knowledge. We have to know things in order to have this conversation. And if they don't understand that, then I might break it down even more. And see, that's what I've done, because you could prove logic and you could prove all these other things in Scripture. But the easiest ones to prove, the easiest one to prove is knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So what we're saying from a Christian worldview, and I don't do the bait and switch. I start right off. I say, look, I'm a Christian. And what I say is, unless you start with God, you can't know anything. And I might explain that to them. I say, look, of all the available knowledge in the world, how much do you think you have? It would be the height of arrogance to think that you have 1% of all the available knowledge. I said, wouldn't it follow that the other 99% could contradict the 1% you think you have? Oh, yeah, for sure. So basically, unless you know everything, you can't know anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So who knows everything? God. So in order to know anything, you'd have to be God or have revelation from God. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say this very conversation presupposes my worldview, because you can't make sense of knowledge without God. And then I ask them the question, could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? 
And if they say yes, I say, you've just given up knowledge. They say, what do you mean? I could be right about it. I said, you could be right, but you can't know it. And I say, for instance, let's say, I, let's say you asked me the height of this building out here. And I said it was 40 feet tall, but I could be wrong. Do I know it? Mm-mm. And they say, no, you don't. I say, that's right. And if you say you could be wrong about everything, it follows that you know nothing. And that's exactly what the Bible says. That's why you need to repent. You know, and it's an immediate destruction of their worldview. Mm-hmm. Of course, you will get the odd person who says, well, yeah, no, I can know things for certain. And then I say quite simply, okay, in order to come to that knowledge claim, did you use your reasoning? Yes, I did. Well, would you admit that there's people on this earth who have invalid reasoning? Oh, yeah, for sure, there's lots of people like that. I say, well, could those people know that they were such people? And they think for a while. Some of them, you know, they've totally lost where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you, would it, need, you would need valid reasoning to know that you're a person with invalid reasoning. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So a person with invalid reasoning couldn't know it, correct? Right. How do you know you're not one of those people? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I say, well, that's the problem. Because right. you do know you're not, because you know that God exists, and you know he's given you the faculties by which you can know things. You need to repent, young man. Right. All right, we're going to pause the interview right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll listen to the balance of my interview with Cy Ten Bruggenkade on the new film, How to Answer the Fool. Don't want to miss it? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway, she has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, 
Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premiere Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could be a little bit of a mind-bending experience. Sometimes what we uh, try to teach you here is a little bit advanced and somewhat confusing, but work through it. It'll help you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them. One of them says, Join Our Crew. Well, the Join Our Crew button, when you click on that, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like, like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to 
Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith without it. Now, here is the balance of my interview from earlier today with Sai uh, Ten Brugenkate regarding the new film, How to Answer the Fool. Here we go. Now, l- let me see if I can, you know, l- I'll give you a, a story where I had to employ a, a version of uh, presuppositional apologetics. Um, I, I, being a popular, um, you know, podcaster and radio figure, from time to time I get atheists who come at me, they come out of the Twitter sphere and they, they want to take me on on Twitter, which I always find to be rather interesting because, you know, 140 characters, you want me to discuss <laughs> Well, you know, God with you in 140. We're going to do a full blown debate debate using 140 characters per you know per exchange. This is not going to go well. Watch the film now. You can do it. Yeah, but what what this what this what this atheist did is he ba- this was during this is a while back during the Joe Paterno uh, Sandusky thing over at right. uh, Pennsylvania State, and uh, this atheist said to me, he said. The fact that God didn't stop that evil and that that guy was able to, you know, molest all those children is proof that there's no God. My response was actually pretty simple. I basically said, by what moral standard are you saying that what Sandusky did was evil? Now, I wasn't trying to argue that what he was doing wasn't evil. It truly is. But he, I just simply wanted him to explain to me, by what standard is he determining good and evil, right and wrong? Because he's sitting there basically saying that this is proof that God doesn't exist, but I want to know where he got the standard from. How do I, you know, what objective moral standard can he point me to, to, you know, to say, you know, to even make the claim that what, that what happened at Penn State was evil or wrong? And he could not come up with an answer and was rather upset and then just disappeared and never came back. Oh, absolutely. And that's what they'll do. They'll say, well, because it harms people. Why is harm wrong? You know, they don't have an answer for that. But you'll notice in my discussions, the more that I do them, the less I talk about the moral argument. Now, if somebody comes at me starting with the moral argument, I might immediately take the legs out from that. Mm -hmm. But I say, look, even in order to discuss morality, you need knowledge. Right. So I go right to the epistemological foundation. I say, you can't even have this discussion about morality without God. I was on a, um, on a podcast recently on uh, Apologia Radio, and this fellow, he was talking about, he said, well, our morality isn't perfect. And then I got a chance to engage him. I said, look, I want to get to your epistemology, uh, epistemological foundation first, like how you know things. But tell me, if our morality is not perfect, what is perfect morality? And the guy says, I don't know. <laughs> you can't say that ours is not perfect. You know, so I think just to deflect those, and that's also a proper use for evidences, by the way. If somebody comes up with a ridiculous evidential claim, and you happen to know the evidence, then you know you can embarrass them in their ridiculous claim. But one thing I'll fu- you'll find is that when you do that, that's what the unbeliever is going to latch onto. Let's say you're an expert in rock layers, and you know the guy makes a ludicrous claim, and then you know you challenge him on that, and you happen to know more than him, mm-hmm. and you wipe the floor with him, and then you get to the gospel. Right. But what's that kid going to do when he gets home? He's going to Google rock layers. You want him to repent and put his trust in Jesus Christ, and he's Googling rock layers. Congratulations. You know, and then he's going to pull up Professor So-and-so, who's going to pull him out there the next day and talk rock layers with you. You know, and that's why I say if you happen to, you know, use some evidences, just use it quickly, decisively, but get back to the gospel, get back to the authority of the Word of God. Right, exactly. And not only that, I think evidences are actually, well, 
are very beneficial for Christians to understand. Absolutely. For the very reason that, you know, if you're a baptized, penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have a target on your back the size of Nebraska and, uh, and well, not the Nebraska, maybe Texas, Alaska, you know, <laughs> as, as large as Canada itself. But, uh, it, it, but and, you know, Satan is coming after you. And the reality is, is that, you know, people are going to throw up at you really screwy claims, basically accusing you of being irrational, crazy, stupid, a rube, and all that type of stuff. And then they'll throw out the latest popular argument against uh, Christianity. And so I think it's important for Christians to understand the evidences that you know, the faith that we have is not built on sand or in the middle of the air, but is actually, you know, that there's solid good evidence that the claims of the New Testament, you know, are true based on eyewitness testimony. And ultimately, what that does is it, it you could say it buttresses our faith. It makes right. it makes it clear that, you know, you, you don't end up saying something silly like, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, that's pure subjectivity. So I think there's a, there's a good place for evidences, especially in building a Christian up in his faith and making it so that uh, Satan can't easily knock it down with some of these uh, crazy arguments. But the reality is, is that um, it, it, it has a limited purpose and scope and use uh, in a true apologetic evangelistic context, um, because, like you, you rightly point out, it makes the non-believer the judge, and rather than <laughs> they're going to be judged by God, it's <laughs> you know, right. you know it, 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 it creates a weird juxtaposition that um, continues uh, to cater to their exalted ego. Right. See, that's the thing. Like I use evidences among Christians to bolster our faith. You know, because. On the face of it, evolution is absurd. And I might walk out that argument with an unbeliever, but I save that for believers. Because I actually did that at uh, Brown University. We were doing a, a tour of uh, open-air preaching at these, at these universities. And I brought out an absurd claim of evolution, and they jumped on it. That's all they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, for instance, let's say you want to talk about the age of the Earth, and, you, and somebody says, well, carbon-14 dating has shown that the Earth is millions of years old. You say, well, actually, carbon only has a half-life of so many thousands of years. It can yep. only measure things. And then what's the next thing? That got, well, actually, I'm talking about radiometric dating, and we have different isotopes and yada, yada, yada. And then you're talking evidences, and you're getting totally off track. So that's why I say if you're going to use them, use them in a way that you can do it decisively and then get back to the gospel uh, right. presentation. Right, Now, let me, let me uh, tell you the, uh, the metaphor I used over the weekend. I was uh, in Palo Alto, California over the weekend, and... Um, maybe you can correct me on this, but I, I, I like trying to paint word pictures. And since I was in Silicon Valley, I used a computer analogy and, uh, that is in, in trying to explain, you know, kind of the epistemological approach of presuppositional apologetics. I said, imagine if tomorrow, um, all of the Macintosh computers on the planet, all of a sudden awoke and had consciousness and and you know and so we're talking about you know computers with memory boards and memory chips and you know all that type of stuff uh, that was designed by Apple Computer and ultimately has its genesis in the mind of uh, of of the late Steve Jobs. And I said, well, and then imagine all of these Apple Macintosh computers. They are now cognizant and they can think, and so they're all connected to the internet. And they start reaching out to each other, and they and they start talking to each other. And in the course of their conversations. All of these Macintosh computers come to the conclusion that Steve Jobs never existed. 
The irony of that is that Steve Jobs is the one that gave every one of those computers the ability to think and to do the things they did and are doing. And they're using those exact things that Steve Jobs has given them to disprove Steve Jobs. You know, is is do you think that's a fair analogy of uh, you know that that kind of fits into what you, you're accomplishing in this apologetic? Yeah, I like that. It reminds me of uh, the Van Til analogy when he was on a on a train ride, I think, to Philadelphia, and he saw a, a girl sitting on her father's lap, reaching up and slapping her father in the face, and he thought to himself, "This girl could not slap her father in the face unless she was sitting on her father's lap," and that's exactly what unbelievers are doing. They're taking the tools that God has given them. And they're slapping God in the face with them. And, you know, when I was out at the campuses, you saw some really crazy people. And I said, God will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. Right. And you could see the conviction in their eyes. You know, because now they got somebody who's not talking about the complexity of the eye. Now you got somebody who believes what he says about Scripture and proclaims it with authority. Right, right. Now, l- let me throw out, uh, you know, what I would think would be like, you know, one of the passages that evidential apologists would probably throw back in your face and say, well, wait a second, Sai, you know, you're, you seem like you're just, you're, maybe you're being too unkind to this approach. And it didn't l- look at the story of Doubting Thomas, you know, there in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, you know, he says he's not going to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus shows up and he says, take, look, you know, you know, touch my hands and my side. See, you know, and what does he do? He falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. See, there we go. That's evidential apologetics. Yeah, but it's not. Thomas believed in God. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like I say, look, Jesus did miracles. He did evidences to prove his deity. I don't mind that. You know, if, but I say to people, look, if that's the evidence that you want to use, if you can do miracles, go ahead. You know, but that's not the evidence they're talking about. They're talking about the complexity of the eye. That's not what happened in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, there is an example of evidences for the existence of God with Elijah at Mount Carmel. You know, when he said, call down fire on this to the, to the prophets of Baal. You know, and he said, well, I'm going to give you evidence of God. Here, douse that, you know, that, that wood in, um, in water and keep more and more water. And he called, called down fire upon it. Of course, the Lord sent fire and burnt it up. And I say, you know, after Elijah uh, gave the evidence to the prophets of Baal, wasn't it nice what he did? He said, there's our circumcision tent. Line up single file now that you're part of the community. Welcome aboard. I said, no. He slaughtered them. And I said, look, if William Lane Craig wins an evidential argument, that's fine. He's just got to kill his opponent. But no, of course, I don't mean that seriously. But, <laughs> right. But, but that's the thing. You know, that was a judgment on these people. Mm-hmm. And there are evidences in Scripture, but never for the existence of God, except in a case like that, where it resulted in their being killed. Yeah. You know, and you you brought up a good point, too, too and that's this, is that when we look at, you know, for instance, the uh, the preaching of, uh, of the Apostle Paul, you look at, uh, or the Apostle Peter, and uh, you know, Paul in particular, when he would travel, you know, on his missionary journeys, he would meet with two different types of people. He would meet, uh, first and foremost, he would go to the synagogues to proclaim that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he would argue that with people who already believed in God, using two, two things, eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Christ, him being uh, an eyewitness himself, although abnormally born, and then as well as fulfilled prophecy. Those were the two primary thrusts of his, 
uh, apologetic, if you would, but it was done in the context of evangelism. And I find over and again that the Apostle Paul has a very Christocentric, not philosophical-centric uh, you know, ar- you know, argument in his uh, uh, apologetics, and then when he gets to Mars Hill, he begins with the presupposition of the existence of God, because these guys all believe in deities. But he says, "Let me tell you about this unknown God." And he doesn't pick one of the pantheon, you know, Zeus or anything. Like that. He says, "Let me tell you about the unknown God," and then he immediately drives home the point that uh, that you know, talking about the resurrection of Christ and that you know, and how he wants them to you know the true God wants them to abandon these these vain idols and it doesn't go over very well but you know but y- you get what I'm saying here so I think there's something to what you're talking about you want to comment on the, on those passages and kind of help absolutely you know, and frame you know the your apologetic approach in light of that well a lot of people think that Acts 17 is an evidential chapter Bonson has that as an appendix of one of his books say it's presuppositional. And this is the question I ask. I say, if, if Paul never went to Athens, would those people have an excuse? I say, no, they wouldn't. Why not? Because they already knew. Right. See, I think it's verse 31 where it said, in the past, God forgave their ignorance. You can't ignore what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's the same Paul that wrote Romans 1, who said that they're without excuse. But I often bring people to Acts 26, verse 8, where Paul was before Agrippa. Now, wasn't it interesting all the evidences that Paul gave for the resurrection to Agrippa? In Acts 26, 8. Why do you find it incredible that God should raise the dead? You know, he didn't give evidences. Somebody asked me about Noah's Ark. Why do you find it incredible that God should build an ark? Why do you find it incredible that God should have a man and a fish for three days? Yeah. I don't have to give you evidence of that. See, the people don't have problems with the miracles. They have problems with the God of the miracles. Right. And if you profess that God exists, then those miracles are nothing. And that's why one of the most important verses in this is... uh, 2 Timothy 2.25, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We're trying to get people to see the truth so that they repent. We're trying to get them to see the truth with evidences so they repent. 2 Timothy 2.25 says repentance comes before a knowledge of the truth. You know, you're not going to believe that a donkey talked if you deny the God that made that happen. Mm-hmm. Now, this has implications, then, for so-called Christian theologians who traffic in skepticism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, you know the, the sad thing about that is, is when people see these theologians in these debates, they walk away from that, they say, I could never do that. That guy is so smart. And I'm not saying that it's the pride, their pride that puffs them up, because, you know, I used to do it as well, and mine wasn't a pride issue. I thought that was the right way. However, people walk away from those debates, they say, I could never do that. They listen to one of my debates and they say, oh, I can do that. You know, and, and that's the apologetic God who commands us to give a reasoned defense of our faith also equips us. Everybody should be able to do it. Right, right. But, you know, you, you don't need to apologize and prove that God exists, per se. You know, don't, don't engage them on the battlefield of their choosing. Right. You know, I, I, and that's one of the things I like about uh, this particular apologetic approach. Now, let me ask you this. You know, you, you, you uh, obviously travel a, a bit and uh, induce uh, the evangelism at colleges. At least that's what, what, you know, you see that in the video here. I find it interesting that postmodernism has come up with an interesting solution to the dilemma that you end up exposing when you talk with them. Um, and that is, is that, you know, you talk about the fact that without God, you give up all, all ability for knowledge at all. Because knowledge presupposes the existence of God. But many postmoderns 
um, they don't have a problem with the dilemma because their solution would be, well, yeah, you're right. And they would just embrace unknowing and talk about humbly experiencing the truth in conversation within a community. Do you ever run across folks like that? And, and what, what do you say to somebody like that? All the time. Because they say, yes, I can't know anything. I said, do you know that? See, that's the problem. Say, every word out of their mouth exposes that they know that God exists. And I'll give you an example. I say, look, I'm talking to somebody who might have just said that. And I said, okay, now you're about to utter sounds out of your mouth. On what basis do you assume that those words that you're about to speak mean the same things they did five seconds ago? How do you know anything about the future since you deny God? Do you have a crystal ball up in your dorm room somewhere? I say, no. You're going to utter sounds, and you're going to make them sound the same way that you did before and expect that I understand them because you know that God exists. And they might say to you, well, then I'm not going to speak anymore. So you know what? Every one of your thoughts proves that God exists because the words you're thinking in your mind, you assume that they mean the same things that they did five seconds ago. So you have no basis for that assumption if you deny God. And if they walk away quietly, you know, God can work in that silence. Right. And that's what we have to do, just expose the absurdity of saying, I can't know anything. Well, do you know that? Right, and, and and so this is one thing I want to point out. That again, one of the strengths of the film is <laughs> is that I think you're very skilled at identifying the evidence that they speak from their out of their mouths, and when they give you an answer to show that they are that they really what they're saying presupposes that they know that God exists. They're they're telling you that He doesn't, but everything they're doing is showing you they actually do. And you really do a very good job of identifying those key phrases. It's like, oh no no no, if if you really if you really didn't believe God exists, you wouldn't have said that. Right. Well, that's the beauty. We talked a little bit about uh, before we went on air here, but I'm a dude with a website. I was working in a factory five years ago. May 18th will be the anniversary. And this is what I tell people, that it's not because I'm such an intellect, you know, it's because I'm speaking the truth. But what I tell people is that I'm one of seven children, and it used to be sport for us to uh, engage each other. And if you didn't anticipate what the person was going to say to you, then you get the argument shoved down your throat. Right. You know, so that's, that's about all I have, because, like I said, I was working in a factory, May 18th will be the f- five-year anniversary of that. And... Um, I'm those people out there. The people who watch this film, I'm not the PhD out there. You know, I'm at their level. And that's the kind of thing that I show, you know, that anybody can do this. And all I'm really doing is anticipating what they say and assume that if they deny God, every word of their mouth presupposes that God exists. Right. And and again, to somebody who's not familiar with this, it might seem like you've got to be kidding me, right? That's crazy. That can't possibly be true. But if you actually take the time to study the argument a little bit, you realize, oh, wait a second, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I tell people. I say the very concept of truth presupposes God. Right. And you see on the film, I give that analogy that Doug Wilson gives of shaking up the bottles of pop and opening them and watching them fizz. I say if our brains are just the, the byproduct of evolution and our thoughts are just the byproduct of the chemical reactions, then we're not thinking. Our brains are just barfing. Right. And you can't call one brain fizz true and one brain fizz false. Mm-hmm. It's absurd to deny the God that I believe in. And what, what we'll do as Christians is we'll assume that they can reason without the God that they know exists. We'll give them all of that and then we'll reason with them. And the analogy that I like to use is like getting on the unbeliever's airplane. If you assume that they can reason without God and you get on that airplane, doesn't matter where you take them, you're going to the unbeliever's destination. Because yep. they say, I can get there 
without giving God the glory. Mm-hmm. And and you even uh, you even give an example of uh, a lady who came up to uh, you and an, a friend of you yours who were doing uh, street evangelism, and this lady asked for evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Right. And rather than repenting and getting on her knees and begging for mercy and forgiveness from God, she says, "Well, okay, yeah, I believe he rose from the dead." And and she went on her way, but I don't believe he's God. Right. Yeah, that was a friend of mine. And that's the thing. I say, this friend of mine, Dustin, he's a presuppositionalist. This woman wanted evidence. I say he gave it to her because she wasn't challenging the truth of what he believed. And that's a perfect time for the use of evidences. And he gave her all the evidences for the resurrection. And he convinced her that Jesus rose from the dead. And she said, wow, I believe he rose from the dead. I don't believe he's God. Because if you have a presupposition that the supernatural doesn't exist... You can convince them of whatever you want. They're still going to deny the supernatural. Right. And, of course, they say we're begging the question by starting with the supernatural. Well, they're begging the question by starting without the supernatural. Right. And they never see that the, that the contrary is true for them. Evidentially, say the same thing. They say that my argument is circular. But they don't understand the circularity of their own view. But the problem is there's virtuous circles when you start with God who reveals and, you know, even evidentialists do that. Yeah. And I see that, there, that this this way of, of looking at things, it, it's, it's in classical Lutheran theology, um, this, this is how they argue against um, skeptical, so-called skeptical, higher critical, so-called Christian biblical scholars. They would basically argue, listen, Scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you're going to then circle back around and attack the very word that is the thing that basically, you know, God uses to raise people from the dead, brings them to penitent faith and trust in Christ, you're going to circle back around and attack that very word. Um, you're attacking the very spring of, of, of Christian regeneration. That's not the, the behavior of somebody who is a Christian. That's the behavior of somebody who has cut themselves off and is suppressing the truth. That's the, that, those are the actions of an unbeliever. That's right. See, we start off our argument by denying the very thing we're trying to prove, Christ's preeminence. We're trying to prove that, but we deny it when we do it. You know, the unbeliever could say, well, you didn't need Christ for all of this argument. Say, that's right. If you do it the wrong way, right? You know, see again. See, see that's an aspect of this. You know, if if we're going to re- go out there and proclaim that Christ Jesus is Lord, and we really believe that, we're doing it as ambassadors who believe that, and we don't hand that over to the non-believer and say, "Okay, let me prove it to you." You know, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, if you're truly sent by Christ, uh, you know, to go and proclaim. You know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Then you already believe this. You don't have to argue this with Him. You just need to point to the person who's not believing that and say, "Here's what the King of the Universe says: Repent." Right. And the problem is, and like I, I, we mentioned before the uh, before this discussion as well, is that I thought that the problem with his apologetic is that it was at the PhD level, but more and more I'm bringing it down to my level, mm-hmm. and more and more I'm seeing that people still don't like it. And the problem is I'm becoming to see that they don't like this apologetic because they don't want that God. They don't want Jesus who's Lord of everything. Because guess what? If he is, I can't sleep with my girlfriend anymore. I'll still go to church every Sunday, but then I can't cheat on my taxes anymore. You know. And they want the wishy-washy, probable God. When you say, no, God has proclaimed himself with certainty, say, you know, I don't think I want that one. I want the one that I'm comfortable with. I want the idol that I've created. And sadly, the more I do this, the more I think that's the case. Of course, I, you know, I will never accuse anybody of that, but I'm starting to have my doubts. Mm-hmm. Now, 
the, the in the film, I you uh, you they recorded you having an uh, a debate with uh, some atheists, and boy, those atheists were just not keen about your your argument. They they had a problem. But what I thought was interesting is is that the guys hosting the debate they were supposedly Christians, but uh, they were um, they they kept siding with the atheists. Was, oh, absolutely! It was bizarre. Uh, you well, know, walk us through a little bit of that, but you don't give us all the details because I want yeah, people. Yeah, that's no problem. Yeah. Well, I, we went to the, into this debate, and I'd seen a few of their shows prior, and they denied the resurrection. And you know, I knew that they weren't Christians going into it, so I I was actually waiting to get my hands on the host, you know, and to his argument. And by the way, the host's name is what? He calls himself Doctor Jones. I don't know what his real name is because he has a different name on facebook and on youtube but he calls himself dr jones and you know going into it i already knew that this man was not a christian but i wanted to um you see i was in georgia with with the group we were doing this filming and eric hoven a friend of mine he said you're only five hours away do you want to come down and, and do this debate with me so five of us jumped in a van and we went down there and all we really wanted was the head of the american atheist to say that he could be wrong about everything he claims to know but we got a whole lot more Right. Because as people who have seen the YouTube uh, video saw that I walked out of that debate, and the conversation that ensued with the host and the producer that basically told me to get off the stage, that really is the crux of the film. We should have paid these people. Because all of the arguments that I was using, it came together, especially with the, with the producer, with that Joey fellow. Because I was worried about some of the, the film I was watching. I thought, well, that's a bit of a loose end. That's a bit of a loose end. But this Joey fellow in our conversation, we tied it all up. Because I began addressing him as a Christian, because I thought he was a Christian. He evidenced that he wasn't, and I transitioned to dealing with him as an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. And then people can see the difference. As a Christian, I'll discuss Scripture with you all day long, because that's our authority. You give it up as the authority, I'm not going to discuss Scripture with you. I'm not going to let you, an unbeliever, judge the words of God, you know, whether it's true or not. And you can see that transition. And, and, yet, and yet the guy, one of the guys said, oh, I love Jesus with all my heart. And yet he despises his very word. How do you reconcile those two claims? Well, you could see that I, I didn't. I don't know if you want to give away what I did. No, I, no, no, no. I don't want on, to give on it away. The, on the pyromaniacs, um, um, the report that uh, Dan Phillips did, you know, he was actually surprised by what I said to that fellow. And I'm really shocked that people find that surprising, what I said to him. But he offended my Lord when he said that. Right. And that's why I came back as I did. And, you know, I, he said that he could not imagine anybody else doing that, you know, bloggers or, or these people. And I said, well, for me, that was the most obvious answer. Right. You know, you're, you're attacking the Scripture, claiming that you love Jesus while despising his word. And yet Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will tereo, guard, you will keep, you will guard my word. And yet this guy was flat out attacking his word, which basically disproves his claim to, to loving Jesus. Right. And I think we need a little bit more of that. I, the thing I love about that, that part of the film is that it's, it, it's stark. You, you weren't thinking, oh, oh, brother, let me correct you here and, and nothing of the sort. I mean, and I think what you did was absolutely in line with what Jesus said. Really, if you love me, you're going to keep and you're going to guard my word. And this guy's flat out attacking his word and, and is basically trying to make it so that, you know, the book of Romans doesn't say what the book of Romans says. And it, it can mean anything. And he's trying to bend it, you know, to make it say what he wants it to say rather than what it does say. That's not the behavior of a Christian. That's the behavior of somebody who is a, on, an unbeliever. And one other bit of encouragement from my discussion with Dr. Jones is you could see that that guy was way smarter than me. 
he used words that I'd never heard of before, but it was irrelevant because smarter people just hide their objection to God with bigger words. Yeah. You know, and this is the example that I've heard Bonson give. If somebody comes up to you and says something in German, you don't try and sputter words back to in German. You're like, it's been, you know, you don't do that. You say, look, I don't understand what you're saying. You know, and that takes some humility as well. Right. So look, look, and it didn't matter the words he was using because he was making truth claims. And he would not give a, a foundation for them. Yep. And it was clear he was trying to make it, you know, make himself the judge with this framework that he had with these big words, you know. Well, I'll believe it if it does, you know, the this and that and the other thing and the uh, if the scatzafrats fits with the the <laughs> schnoz blog or and you know <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty easy to see through what he was doing. And I and I thought you did a very good job of just not engaging him based upon the construct, the epistemological construct that he had established for himself. But one thing that I want the viewers of the film to realize as well that except for the grace of God, that is us. Yeah, every one of us. That that this person is heading to hell, and that would be us except for the grace of God. Because people listen to my debates, and they high-five. You know, I did this one debate, and it wasn't aired quite yet. I was listening with a friend of mine, and he was high-fiving me. He was laughing, and I let him. Because for the first time in his life, he'd seen a debate where Christ is honored, and he loved it. It was such a relief. But at the end, I said, look, this is not funny. Yeah. Because I understand your relief, but this man is going to hell. And that's us except for the grace of God. And that's yeah. why even I don't lord it over uh, people who have who do evidential apologetics. Because one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do we have that we've not been given? So if we've been given a proper understanding of apologetics, don't lord it over those people. But they will come out and attack. I- I'm sure that you'll get some... Uh, Mail after this uh, this radio show. Oh uh, yeah, that's okay. I'm <laughs> I'm used I'm used to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a daily occurrence. <laughs> um, okay, real quick, I I, I want to segue a little bit and ask a little bit of a, of a of a burning question that I have, and and that is is that you, guys like you, Marcus Pittman, and others, you know, you, you make a point of going out. And proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins in hostile environments, and you engage, you know, in in really good street evangelism. Uh, give us give us a report on you know you know on on the effectiveness of this. When you go out, do you see people who are brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins who end up in churches and um and and are truly. Uh, brought to faith as a result of those efforts? Because over and again, I get questions from people saying, well, what do you think of street evangelism? Is it really worth it? Are there, you know, that kind of thing? And I want to hear it from somebody who can give an actual knowledgeable answer to that. Give us a report from the street mission field, if you would. Well, one thing before I get into that, the credits of the movie are of my favorite part because they they show director of photography, Marcus Pittman, and what's he doing? Street preaching. Right. Key grip, Mike Stockwell. What's he doing? Street, Street preaching. Mm-hmm. See, these are people that are out on the road actually doing this. And as far as a report goes, because we go into these areas, and I know one of the criticisms is we, we blow in, we blow up, and we blow out. And I don't get a lot of feedback there. I've, you know, through the years that I've had my website, of course, I've had reports of conversions. But you can see the conviction in their eyes. You get one fellow, he was heckling one of our brothers who was preaching. And a policeman actually had to get between them. And I ended up evangelizing this guy for about half an hour. And you see the conviction. What becomes of that? I'm not sure. But one thing that I have to tell people is that it's not about results. It's about honoring God when we do this. Because if Jeremiah was about results, you know, he would have been crying, I think, a lot more than he was. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we see the conviction in their eyes. And you hear reports of people sometimes a year, 10 years. I read this report of this uh, 
famous BMX rider. And 17 years later, he became a Christian. He did this whole, this, this beautiful testimony of how he became a Christian. And at the very end, he says, but what I didn't tell you is 17 years ago, I heard a street preacher. And every time that I had doubts, I thought back to this. And that's what did it. And we see conviction in the eyes of these people. And hopefully when we come back, like one guy was a particularly bad heckler, and he was really humbled in our exchange. And I said, you know, I hope the next time I come back that, that, you're, the, uh, that you're the campus chaplain here. <laughs> and like I say, as far as the immediate results, you don't really get that, but you see the conviction in their eyes. Right. I mean, people who start mocking you and walk away in tears. And, and it's not, you know, out of tears... Because the thing is, when those people walk away in tears, it's not because they've been crushed, but we've given them the hope right. as well. Right. And, you know, that's, that's what our job is. And, you know, I love the Ray Comfort analogy, too, is that, you know, if this person knows the plane is going down and you give them a parachute, then they'll find the church. You know, they'll find the right answers. They're going to keep that parachute on. But, you know, if you just tell them that this parachute is a, is a nice way to live your life and people start mocking you, they're going to take it off. Right. But when we're out there, we're talking about the truth of salvation, you know, being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and you don't take that off. And I say, look, if that's the case, of course, you know, we like to give information of local churches when we're out there, but these people will find the truth if they've been pricked, because Jesus who starts a good work and then will complete it. Right. And how does the Apostle Paul put it? He says, listen, one plants and other waters, but it's God right. who gives the increase. Amen. And so, you know, what, what I like about what you guys do out there is that uh, you're out there sowing the seed, broadcast style? You know, in the ancient broadcast, you're you know you're th- throwing it everywhere, and you know you're and you're not you're you're not afraid to take the hits for doing so. And and from what you're reporting to me, then is that uh, you understand that it's God who gives the increase, and you may never see the results. Right. And uh, but that's okay. God's word doesn't return void. Well, we close the film with one exchange, and you could see the conviction in that uh, yeah. young man's eyes. What became of him? I don't know. But, you know, thankfully, that's why it's a reformed apologetic, too, is that I can't convert even one person. I'm commanded to speak the truth in love and mm-hmm. hope that the Holy Spirit does the yeah. converting. That's right. And that, see, and that's the other thing that I think is important here, is that you're not catering to a, a Arminian or Pelagian uh, false theology. You're not there to convince somebody uh, to exercise their free will. You're there to proclaim Christ as Lord and him as crucified for their sins. That's what you're there to do. And you understand it is God, the Holy Spirit, who converts people through the proclamation of that. Yeah, that's what I say. If, if people can come to a saving knowledge of Christ on their own, give them evidence. It makes sense to give evidence if these people contribute to their salvation. Mm-hmm. If it's Jesus Christ who saves then it doesn't. Right. And the thing is, there might be difficulties, like there are places for evidence. This part never made sense to me, you know, a stumbling block. Clear it up for them, you know. I have no problem with that. But then if they go from that to the next one, then you know that they have an agenda, that they just want to bolster their non-belief. Right, right. And then I, I think that the, the more um, time-honored atheists, I think they make it a badge of basically being able to say, yeah, I've seen all the evidence, and yeah, I'm still not convinced. Yeah, see, I've, I've been able, uh, the best of them have thrown their evidences at me, and it was still not compelling. See, I'm still standing. And yeah. Well, that's, you know, back to the college campuses. That's one of the reasons that we go to the campuses, because I went to the Atheistic Reason Rally a couple years ago, I think it was March in 2010. I don't know. It was recent. Everything seems to be jumbled into one now. 
But the college students, I could reason with. I could have a good discussion with them. 10, 15, 20 years older, we'd be getting the finger. Yeah. We'd be, you know, they'd be swearing at us because God hands people over. He hands people over to the depravity of their mind. Yeah. And that's why we like to get to the colleges. I mean, of course, God is sovereign over all these things, but that's when we want to talk to them, when we can still reason with them. Right. No, that makes sense. All right. So the, uh, so the website, again, is answerthefool.com, and the name of the film – notice I kept using that word throughout the rest of the interview <laughs> – <laughs> the name of the film – it's not a video, it's a film – is uh, How to Answer the Fool. So it's answerthefool.com. And Sai, I got to tell you, it was it was an honor to have you on the uh, on Fighting for the Faith, and I pray for the success of the video, the film, uh, for the very reason that I really believe that it will help people in uh, in effectively. It, although this is you know kind of a funny way of putting it, uh, sharing Christ and Him crucified for our sins to uh, those they love and know so that they can be brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is what it's all about. If we are to go and make disciples, we need to do so in a way that honors our King, honors our Lord, and doesn't make the atheist the judge. And I think this is one of the great con- uh, con- contributions of uh, this particular apologetics video. And I thank you guys for making it. And uh, thank you to Marcus Pittman and uh, the Chocolate Knox and Ivy Connerly, the, the, the rapper, the hip-hop rapper. Ivy Connerly worked on this. So, he was the sound guy. He actually did the uh, closing rap song for it. Yeah. And, of course, Chad Trotter and Gary DeMar from American Vision, they were instrumental in this. Right. Now, what I fa- – <laughs> this is hilarious. When m- when most people think of, like, hip-hop and, and rap, I mean, guys like Ivy Connerly and Jovan McKenzie and, uh, and, and those guys, they have an a, amazing ability to take really deep theological concepts and, and, and put it to rhyme like that. And it was, I thought it was very fascinating listening at the very end with Ivy Connerly singing <laughs> about presuppositional apologetics. This is not no, the normal um, subject of uh, hip hop right. or rap. So, well, I, I realize you got to get going, but uh, Ivy was the sound man for this, and of the group, he was the least uh, uh, informed on the apologetic, and he was listening to all the conversation because he was a sound man and he was loving it. So he couldn't wait to do that uh, that presupp rap song. Right. So, it's, it's worth it's worth the video just to hear that. <laughs> Film. Outside oh, sorry. Film. <laughs> See, I have a weird presupposition there. So. <laughs> so. All right, brother. Thank you, Sai, and uh, hopefully we can have you on uh, Fighting for the Faith sometime again in the future. It was a great conversation. Love to maybe get an atheist on with us. You know, that would be an interesting thing. I you know I I haven't hosted any debates on on, on here, but it, that would, that might be something worth doing. You know, just have a, a radio debate. And uh, unlike the, the other debate, I would not. Uh, hand over the keys to the car to the atheist. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, the thing is, I like to do just discussions more than formal debates because I don't like them going on 15 minutes of an opening statement. Right. You know, cursing the, the God that I adore. But a discussion like this, and you know, I'd love to do that sometime. Yeah, I'll, something to consider for a future episode of Fighting for the Faith. Amen, brother. All right, amen. Thank you, and uh, we will keep in touch. Thank you, brother. Yeah, bye-bye. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy when by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>